Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is The Most Important Medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. We do this by listening to stories, your stories and the story of other professionals and patients. We listen to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed practice or provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use right away. Today, I'm really excited. I am joined by Dr. Amy Apigian. She is a physician, double board certified, and also has two master's degrees in biochemistry and public health, and is a leading expert on the stored trauma in the body. She bridges the world of functional medicine and trauma therapy to help accelerate the trauma healing journey through her framework and protocols addressing the biology of trauma, which I cannot wait to hear more about. Uh, trauma became her study and passion after two very personal experiences for her, adopting four-year-old Miguel from the California foster care system and experiencing her own severe health crash and burnout in 2014 while finishing her third year of general surgery residency. Having to learn things she never learned in medical school helped to help her son and rebuild her own health and life. She now teaches what she had to learn, the difference between stress and trauma in the body and how to help the body heal itself. She founded the Trauma Healing Accelerated to offer online educational and experiential trauma healing programs and has led hundreds of professionals through her modules in the Biology of Trauma Certification course. Amy, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Um, anything you want to add? That's kind of your, your big bio, your fancy bio. What else would you like my listeners to know about you? Yeah, and thank you for that bio. Uh, I'm a biker. I'm an international traveler. And yeah, I've been a foster parent. I've been an adoptive mom. And I, uh, I like to say that I collect life experiences. <laughs> don't we all um tell me what kind of biker like motorcycle biker or bicyclist like bicyclist yeah my my I love the road so I prefer the road biking and I love country roads way back where there's very little cars and you have to watch more for the dogs and for cars those are my kind of roads where I, I, I can just go for hours and just be in heaven uh, I have done some mountain biking over the years, but have never gotten into it as much as I have done the road biking. Awesome. Awesome. And as Amy and I were chatting before we hit record today, we also found out, um, as most of you know, I live just outside of Portland in Newburgh and Amy was actually here for part of her training and lived in Oregon for several years. So you're in San Diego now though, right? I am. Yeah. I've got, I've got my base at, well, really my base is in central Mexico where I'm building a home and retreat center. And then uh, for, for right now, my U.S. base is San Diego. Awesome. So that's a perfect catalyst. Just tell us what you're doing right now. What are you up to? Oh, my goodness. It's so many exciting things. And as I look back, I'm still amazed that this is where I'm at because I never imagined that this is what I would be doing. I saw myself as a very conventional medicine doctor back in the days. And after surgery, I ended up switching residencies because I by then had started a nonprofit to help other adoptive families. Okay. And I wanted to teach them the little that I did know, but I had learned something along the way. And I saw many of them really struggling with the parenting and knowing mm -hmm. how to be the parent that their child needed. And 
those were some of the most meaningful weekends that I would have. And I would, I would design these weekend family challenge camps, run 10 to 12 families through at a time. And I found when I had my health crash and needed to find a different path for myself, that that was where I found the most meaning. But of course, as you know, there is no field of trauma in medicine. And so it was a lot of soul searching, Amy, where I finally ended up on, well, then I'm going to create it. And I decided that I was going to go into uh, create a field of attachment, trauma, and addictions. Yeah. And so that's what led me then to switch residencies, finished up a preventive medicine residency, then went right into working in addiction medicine clinics, and then running a 20 bed medical detox unit while I slowly started to just kind of put some thoughts and start to share some of my own experiences around my own trauma responses and how I would recognize when that trauma physiology and trauma response would happen. And, and I mean, I was still very much on my own learning path, but as I started to share that, it started to help other people. And so by now that's, that's what I do. And so I, I now don't work in the hospital at all. And I just run online courses and programs. I have my own big annual online virtual summit. It happens usually in um, July or August this year, it's August one through seven. It's the biology of trauma summit. It's all on the trauma disease connection this year. And then I've even grown into teaching a professional training program in the biology of trauma lens and several physicians. I mean, MD colleagues are going through this and it's also wonderful to see the the insights that they have is like light bulbs are going off and dots are connecting for their own health, but then also for what we see in our patients every day and being able to actually see the trauma physiology now when we just didn't have eyes for it before. Sure. And so it's, it's having a completely different understanding of the body, the nervous system, our survival system, and being able to even see disease processes, symptoms, through that lens and it, and it changes a lot and it gives us new tools, which is exciting. It is super exciting. Okay. I want to come back to why we should all be talking about trauma and medicine, but I'm curious about your early story. And I wonder if you could share that with your colleagues and other healthcare professionals who might be listening, who might think like, are you kidding me? You're like three years through a surgical residency and now you're going to pivot to like preventative health care. Like what happened? And, and do you give permission to other residents to do the same thing or other healthcare professionals like to just tune in? Tell, tell me about what happened. I was one of those people, Amy, that I loved to think, right? I mean, I, I got two master's degrees for goodness sakes, right? Like I love to study. I love to read. I love to think. I was not one that was liked all the super emotional stuff necessarily. And it seemed like when I would tap into that stuff, like I would be overly emotional. So it was even more of a reason for me, like just not to open that door. Sure. And what ended up happening is that my body finally had to get my attention somehow that we can't continue living this way. Mm-hmm. And it got sick because I wasn't listening to it in any other way. You were just shutting everything off. Yeah. I mean, I was just doing residency, right? Like I don't have time to take care of my emotions. I don't have time to do all of this stuff. Like I've got a long list of patients to see before the first surgery even happens, right? Like it it would just really, for me came down to survival and 
not to say that that's what prompted it or caused it because I mean, this was my personality going into residency. So mm-hmm. it was, it was all on me, but living my life for so long that way, like there was so many, you could call them like pent up emotions or stuffed emotions, whichever terminology uh, people can relate to that. That was me. Like I was a walking emotional time bomb (laughs) where eventually something was going to go off because I had never really known even how to dive into that. I certainly was not one that would ever go to a therapist or a counselor and I mean, I didn't see the need. I, I felt the best when I was out on my bike and exercising them. By then I had run five marathons and, mm-hmm. you know, so like that, that was my way was just always doing so much and doing and doing and doing. And what I had also learned to do in the process was really to push my body and push it to the limits. How late can we stay up? Yes. How, how late can we stay up studying? Right. Like, and it was very much all focused on just trying to be the best that I could. And that's how I knew to do it at that time. Mm-hmm. And so my body had been trying to talk to me for a long time. It was starting to, I was starting to be overweight. I was now like 30 pounds overweight, really struggling with anxiety and depression. I was on two mood medications for that. And then one day I was on transplant surgery rotation. And as the third year medical student, I was the one who was leading that team. And I got a page in the middle of the night and I went to call back the ICU because it was from the ICU. And I woke up in the morning with my phone still in my hand because I had fallen back asleep before I could even call them back. Oh my gosh. And of course that's a huge no, no, as a resident. I mean, this is, this is patient care. And so I felt so terrible and I realized that it had gotten so bad. My fatigue by now had gotten so bad that I was putting patients at risk. Mm -hmm. And so I had to go out on a medical leave. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even with that, right, like the guilt for me of knowing that, hey, if I'm on a medical leave, that means that my co-residents are having to work longer hours and do more to cover me. Mm -hmm. So it was a, it was a hard, it was a hard time, Mm -hmm. but I I mean, I I literally had no choice at that time because at that time, like I was struggling, struggling, struggling. There were days that I could not even get out of bed. I I I have to say in, in so many providers that I work with and talk to, that's not an uncommon story, right? This this, uh, what I refer to as the unwritten curriculum of, of medical school and residency trainings. And, um, and to be fair, my program was not far different, right? A, gra- a graduate program that's very intense. And the message is to self-sacrifice and to not listen to your body and to disconnect. And in fact, we kind of, you know, hold people up that don't need sleep and don't need to use the bathroom and don't need to eat and like basically not be human. And so I think your story resonates with so many people that you were so depleted. Your body just said, please, you have to now pay attention to me. Yeah, this is stuff that I teach now in my courses of uh, a lot of some of the internal family systems and parts work that I bring into my work where our, our parts have to get our attention somehow. Mm-hmm. And one of those ways is to make us sick. And so a really good question is, what message do these symptoms have for me? Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And that was a hard question for me to look at at that time. But when you're laying in bed for a couple months, you've got uh, no one else to hang out with but yourself and some hard questions. And in that process, I started, I, I found functional medicine. So I started on that path, which has been extremely helpful. Oh my goodness, extremely helpful for getting my health back. And I started doing more research on other trauma modalities that I had never really explored before because I didn't need to. Mm -hmm. I had been able to find all the pieces that Miguel needed. And, and so he was actually um, just, just with another family at that point. And so as I'm exploring these new modalities for the trauma work, I'm, I'm learning about somatic experiencing and this idea of connecting with your body and mm -hmm. following your body sensations and things that I had always blocked off, mm -hmm. right? Like if I'm feeling tired, oh, well, good thing there's caffeine to not feel tired. If I'm feeling lonely, oh, well, good thing that there are brownies to not feel lonely, <laughs> right? All was, these other coping mechanisms that we lean not, on, right? To not feel, to not feel a yeah. certain way. And and so as I'm learning about somatic experiencing and then actually started my own training, I, I went into somatic experiencing training. I, at that point, when I tried to come back to surgery and you're right, it was back into that environment of disconnecting from my body, not listening to my body in order to get through a surgery, because I mean, it's a big inconvenience if you have to go to the bathroom, if you have to eat. And it was, it was almost that, that opposite pull of, but I'm just now trying to connect with my body. And yet all day at work, I'm having to disconnect from my body. And that was for me, something that I, that I realized after a few months, like this is, this is unsustainable for me. I can't move in the direction that I want to with my health that I know that I have to do for my health and have this kind of lifestyle and be in this environment. What I was going to do, I had no idea. And that, <laughs> that brought up a lot of fear. Sure. And here I am three and a half years into a general surgery residency. I've wasted a lot of time and there's no way that I wanted to start over with residency. Like that was, I, I just couldn't even fathom that. I, I didn't have it in me. I, I was still struggling with the fatigue. And so that was another kind of identity crisis of, well, then who am I? Mm -hmm. What am I going to do? And so it was, it was a very thoughtful process to finally arrive at being willing to forge a new trail and create an identity in a field of medicine that that doesn't exist yet. Incredible, incredible. And and how did Miguel play into that? You said there were two pieces. One was your residency and the other one was adopting Miguel. Yeah, I had never been necessarily interested in trauma uh, before Miguel came into my life and I had always just kind of felt this pull that I, that I wasn't even probably consciously aware of, um, towards children who were hurting. Of course, now I understand why and all of that, but at the time I did not. And after finishing my master's in biochemistry, I had several months that were free before I jumped back into the third year medical school rotations. And I decided, well, this seems like a good idea to uh, jump through all the hoops to become a foster care parent. And let's, let's again, collect life experiences. And I just was so unprepared 
because I thought I knew what he needed. So I didn't, I mean, yes, I went through all their trainings, um, which, um, again, knowing what I know now are, uh, still leave you very unprepared, but what I, what efficient would be a good word, right? (laughs) Yes. Very good word. What, what I truly thought at that time in my life was that my love was strong enough to help him overcome his past. Yes. And in combination with time, because I, I knew it wouldn't happen overnight, but between time, because we know we know that time heals all things, right? Like we know this, this is a, a, a truth. Uh, time heals all and love heals all. So the combination of them is, is going to be exactly what he, what he will need. And what happened is that the more time that he was with me, the worse he was getting. Mm. And I think that if there had been anyone who um, maybe had less extreme behaviors, Amy, I probably wouldn't have noticed because again, like this was still at a time when I was so unaware of all of these things, even my own body. And so it took, it, it took a very extreme situation for me to notice and pay attention and do something about it. And it did get very extreme. Uh, mm-hmm. for him, his story was that he, he did like, he tried to kill me, um, several times he would openly talk about it. And so my home became like a child psych unit yeah. where I had to know where he was every single second because he was that fast and he was that strong. Mm-hmm. And when the moment would hit, which you never knew when it would, um, he, he was out for his own survival mm-hmm. and that meant you to your detriment. Yeah. Can I ask you a pointed question about that? You said, you know, time and love actually don't heal all things for, for, um, our pediatricians who might be listening, foster parents, other, I have a lot of early childhood educators who listen to this podcast. Um, finish that sentence, like time and love don't actually heal all things. What does when you're working with such complex trauma? And I don't want to make it sound easy, mm-hmm. but I will say that it's, it's relatively simple, but extremely hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, extremely hard to do. And that is that part of what I did wrong as wanting to love him was that I thought that that meant really connecting with him and, and becoming his friend, right? Like really connecting with him. And so I remember the very first moment that I met him, I did it all wrong, Amy, I did it all wrong. And I got down to his level and, and I had bought him all these toys and I had prepared this incredibly amazing boy bedroom for him. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I found out was that my love was what was scary for him. Absolutely. And so how is it that my love will heal him when he won't even let my love in? Mm-hmm. And that's what he's reacting to. Mm-hmm. And when you get a child, certainly like Miguel and like many, many others that I've now worked with, that never goes away. They can grow up and it can look different, hopefully, right? Hopefully, but many of them, they end up in jail. They end up addicted to substances and that's their, their path. Um, but for, for many others, it can start to look different as they grow older. 
but their wounds are still there and they, they keep people at emotional distance and their relationships are, are very painful to themselves and to other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when my love is what is scary to him, what I had to learn was that what he needed instead is someone strong Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because from their perspective and and this this actually goes for all trauma whether a child whether an adult it doesn't matter now this is this is just trauma physiology that in that moment when which our body goes into trauma a, a trauma response we lose all sense of safety absolutely and that's what we need then. Mm-hmm. And so we know that we're not strong enough because it overwhelmed us. Mm-hmm. And if someone comes along and they seem weaker than me, well, they're not going to help me. They're just going to drag me down because <laughs> if it took me down and I'm stronger than them, then I, I, I can't even have that weight on me. I'll just overwhelm them too. I Exactly. So the only solution then is to have a relationship where they experience you as the stronger and bigger one, meaning bigger than any emotions that they've got. Right. Not just to be clear, not bigger as in scary, right? So, no, 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 no. oh, I just need to be bigger and scary, but bigger as in I can handle this. Yeah. Bigger in terms of, I mean, it does help to have the physical size because uh, I will tell you that anytime that a child has to actually look up at you, it does help. I mean, it just helps to create that dynamic of I've got this, I'm, I'm, I'm bigger than you. So I can handle things that you may not have been able to handle. I can take care of you. Um, Cause that's definitely one of their things is that they don't trust anyone anymore to take care of them. And So that sense of someone who is bigger, stronger, and on your side. And that's who I needed to become. And I didn't know that at first. And I didn't know how to become that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then as I started working more with Miguel and seeing his, his reactions and his patterns, I started to realize, wait a second, like, I think I have some of, some of those reactivity issues around relationships. Thankfully it doesn't show up in such extreme ways like it does for him, but I can still see some of myself in him. Uh Uh-oh. Like I think I've got some attachment issues. (laughs) And when I got sick, one of the things that I had on my insights one day was just how all of the symptoms that I was experiencing were all related to the adverse childhood experiences. And again, I, th- I think that this was somehow by design, because again, if I had had any other child other than Miguel, I, I probably wouldn't have actually learned the lessons that I needed to learn. And if I had had any other symptoms, then, or if it had been Miguel who had gotten sick, I would have probably just said, well, what can you expect? This mm-hmm. is your past. We can't do anything about it. So we just learned to manage it. But because for me, I didn't see any trauma in my childhood. Mm. So I did not understand why I would have the body, the health symptoms that someone who had a lot of trauma 
why would I have those? And so that's what then prompted my deeper research into, well, then what exactly is trauma? Because it clearly isn't what I think it is. So let me, I wouldn't have this. Let me pause and just say for our listeners, right? Um, Sometimes it takes a really deep time of self-reflection to pay attention to what you're experiencing, what people around you are experiencing, and to just pause and say, what else, what's behind what I'm seeing here? What, whether it's Miguel's behavior or our own manifestations, right? But you know, what I tell people all the time is there's always something behind the behavior. If we look behind the behavior, right? Um, so I, I, I love also what you're talking about, which is creating what as psychologists we would refer to, right? As felt safety for someone. How can they feel emotionally and physically safe around you? Um, yeah, and Amy, I mean, this is a very unpopular opinion. Um, and this was, this was a hard lesson for me to learn that for that level of trauma, but it's also the same for addictions. Mm-hmm. For that level of trauma, they feel safer with structure mm-hmm. than freedom. Agree, 100%. 100%. And I didn't know that. Like I expected him to be like any other child where go run out and play and that would freak him out. Yeah. And I wouldn't understand why. It's a playground, mm-hmm. what's your problem? Yeah. yeah. But he had to have structure, containment, And that's how he felt a sense of safety, even though that's also then what he pushed back on and rebelled against. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a wonderful friend and colleague, Robin Goebel, who talks about the fact that we will actually behave in ways that perpetuates what we don't need. Um, But we desperately inside internally want the safety, the structure, the support, but it's, that feels scary too, to ask for that or to have those needs met. Um, let me, let me shift a little bit and say, or ask, um, why should we be talking about trauma in medicine? Why is this important? From my understanding now of the trauma physiology and the trauma response, I see that most people and everyone with a chronic illness is living in a chronic trauma response. Mm-hmm. And so until we can see that and apply the tools for the trauma response, we'll just be managing symptoms. So for your primary care doctor, right, who is seeing patients with any kind of chronic illness, you can pick one that you like or enjoy talking about. What does that mean? How does that manifest? So I teach a masterclass on there are three ways to recognize a trauma response, a trauma physiology Mm -hmm. or stored trauma in the body, whatever phrase you want to use for this. And it's because the autonomic nervous system, which is where the trauma response happens. It doesn't happen in the brain. It does not happen in the central nervous system, or at least it doesn't originate there. It originates in the autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And when that goes into a trauma response, it shows up, it expresses itself on all these different levels because it's like the root of the spring of the fountain that just like it, it then expresses everywhere. So there are all these different levels. And for me, the, the easiest levels to identify would be the thoughts or 
what are your patients saying? Mm -hmm. um, unless we want to directly talk to the providers and how many of them are <clears throat> in a chronic, chronic trauma response, but maybe we'll leave that. So the thoughts. So my patients would come into, uh, you know, just walk into the door and before they were even sitting down, because they knew me by now, right? Before they were even sitting down, you could just like, oh, this is too much. This is, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Those words only come to your mind when your body is in a trauma physiology. Mm -hmm. So you can recognize it by the types of thoughts that you're having of, I can't do this anymore. This, mm -hmm. this feels like too much. Or you may start asking, what's the point? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter anyway. What's the point? Those are all things that only happen in the trauma physiology. So that's on the thoughts level, which of course then generates behaviors, but we're just going to look at the thoughts and then you can look at body sensations. So the stress response is very different than the trauma response. And when a person is in a trauma physiology, they are going to feel a collapse mm -hmm. and you'll even see it as they sit, as they walk. You may even notice it in their face because their facial muscles kind of go limp. And so it just kind of looks like, it looks like they're frowning, right? And then they can kind of just kind of look numb or flat. There may not be a lot of emotion there. You ask them how they're feeling. Fine. Like there's, there's, there's no life in them. Um, and, and they will describe their body as feeling heavy. That's all the sensations that are part of the trauma physiology. But then we can even look at what health symptoms are they having? Because there are certain health conditions and symptoms that are really strongly associated with the trauma physiology more than the stress physiology. Right, right. Now, that's not how we've been taught because we've been taught that these are stress related diseases. That's not true. We just haven't understood what the trauma physiology is. And those are everything from autoimmunity, all of your inflammation, chronic illnesses, your GI issues, especially IBS, but all of them, sleep issues, brain fog, uh, eczema, psoriasis, skin diseases, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. These are, these are, are outcomes of the trauma physiology, not the stress physiology. And so when they're experiencing a flare up of these symptoms or actively in their disease, then you can know for sure that their body in this moment is in the threat is in the trauma physiology. Yeah. They're in a space of a trauma response. Yes. Great. Um, what, if, you know, it's interesting as you were saying that, and I was thinking about, you know, lots of people that I've worked with as well in that intersection, right. That we know that they have irritable bowel syndrome or chronic fatigue syndrome. And we want to like, maybe even as a provider, we know enough to say, this is maybe trauma, but the person is really wedded to the fact that this is a medical illness. Like, don't you have something that you can give me? Don't you have a pill that will fix this? And certainly in Americanized medicine, right? I think we could agree. There's a lot of stuff that gets thrown at it. And a lot of drug companies that are making a lot of money, um, what would you caution that patient, that provider in? This is, this is always a challenge. And, and ultimately, Amy, this is also why I, I got out of conventional medicine was because 
the time that it took to explain to these patients and then to develop their personalized roadmaps, it was not what insurance was willing to cover. Yes. <laughs> and so I, I, my hands were tied behind my back. So I made that decision to leave conventional medicine, but we still need providers who are on, on that front mm-hmm. and able to have those conversations. And where I like to go is I, I, I like to agree with them, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes, this is medical and this is how it's medical. This is a trauma physiology. This is what happens in trauma physiology. This is your autonomic nervous system. This is the oxidative stress that it causes. And your body is so full of this oxidative stress and poor mitochondrial health that the outcome for you is poor sleep, depression, brain fog, and IBS. Mm-hmm. Now, the great thing for you, Susan, Kelly, whatever, right? The great thing for you is that there, if you want to call it a pill, there's one pill, there's one solution for all of those, because they're all being driven by the same thing, which is my words is a dysregulated nervous system or disorder in your survival system. So what we need to do is bring order and organization and flexibility and health and flow back to your nervous system, because that is what is driving all of these. And I guarantee you that all of these will get better. And then that's for me where I started developing what I now call my 21 day journey. And I lead everybody through, this is the starting place for everyone. I lead them through a 21 day journey, which is a very simple 21 days of somatic exercises where I'm teaching them uh, different movements in order to start to just bring some movement into their nervous system. Wait, is this the pill, Amy? Is this the pill? This is the pill. Everybody needs to take this pill. So listen, if you're not listening, listen to this. And I'll tell you the magic of how good this pill is. Mm -hmm. So I teach you a different somatic exercise every day. The exercise itself takes about two to three minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's something that everybody can do so that you don't have to go out and buy something that you can only do if you're, you know, if you have this equipment or if you have this wearable or if you can afford this therapist. No, like these are exercises that you don't need any equipment for. Mm-hmm. And it starts to create this internal felt sense of safety first, then support, and then what we call the expansion within your window of tolerance. And it's important that it's in that order because when we do things ah, out of order, it actually creates more chaos and more fear and panic. So we have to start with safety and then support and then the expansion in our window of tolerance. And in just those 21 days, Amy, people experience on average a 26% decrease in their daily physical pain, 28% decrease in their GI symptoms, 28% decrease in their sleep issues, and a 30% reduction in their depression and a 30% reduction in anxiety. Where else can you take a pill that will do all of those mm-hmm. and that much in just 21 days. Mm-hmm. So, so let's pause for a minute. Here's an important first step that I want people who are listening to hear. And that is first, don't argue with your patient, right? It, validate, validate them, right? This is a medical response in your body, right? I'm not, I, I, think I meet them where they're at 100%. and I just take them the next best step. Yes, because we've done such a great job of separating the head and the body, right? And really, we're reintegrating that and saying, yes, of course, you're experiencing these symptoms. I mean, I tell my clients all the time, of course, this is how you're feeling right now, because this is how your body's internalized this. And then 
you put them really on a journey of attunement with themselves. So this is a great catalyst um, to kind of move, you know, I could talk with you forever, um, but this is a great catalyst to, to move into some of the work you're doing right now. Um, so you train providers um, in, you know, these, you know, we'll call it, you know, the, the prescription, right? And how we treat this. Um, where are you doing that right now? What does it look like? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll have to be honest, Amy, when I started my journey, I was so confused because I could, I knew that this was trauma now, but I still didn't know what to do about it. And I didn't even know if it was possible to reverse, rewire. I didn't even know the language. What am I even asking for? But can I even do this as an adult or because it's been in my body for so long, is this really as good as it gets? And this is what I can expect for the rest of my life. So that's how I started my journey. I didn't even know if there was a light at the end of the tunnel, but I knew that I couldn't stay there. And what I started to do is what I continue to do now, which is Mm self-experiment. Well, let me go try this. Well, let me go try that. Let me go try this. Let me go try that. So between the combination of my experiences with Miguel and now with about a hundred other adoptive families and their kids and seeing what has worked for them, I had a foundation but that wasn't enough for the work that we need to do as adults. Mm -hmm. Kids, their nervous systems are much more neuroplastic. (laughs) So with the, with the right, I want to say the right pressure in place at just the right location and they can shift so quickly. But when you don't know what to do, you, you just, you, you can get lost in the system. And there are so many people that have been in therapy for years, years, years. And, and this is, I I almost want to say like, it's been, it's seen as a good thing because, Oh, like you're, you know, you're, you're taking care of your mental and emotional health. Maybe, but, but are we like, are we actually solving the issue by just talking about it? My answer is no, we're not, but I didn't know what to do, but I could tell that that wasn't working and just keeping me in these loops. of reacting and and then flaring up my health issues. And so through the process of self-experimenting, my study, my different trainings, I started to realize that there are some key elements that we have to have for our healing journey. So that there are a lot of modalities. And I would say that for different people at different times, they can all be helpful. Absolutely. But are there ones that are essential mm-hmm. that if I don't do this, I will be blocked and I won't actually be able to experience the greatest level of healing that is possible for me. And through that process, I've come down to, there are three essential things. And so that's what I teach practitioners now and professionals now so that they have a framework of knowing what are the essentials that I need to bring into my work with someone else for them to have what I call an accelerated healing process so that we're not stuck for years and years, but we can truly accelerate this process when we do the right things in the right order, because we understand how to reverse engineer this. And so the three elements that I have found are essential and you have to get them in somewhere, somehow. And that would be somatic work. So actually, like you said, attuning to your body, but 
we do a lot more than just attuning when we do something like somatic experiencing. We're actually looking to complete prior trauma responses. And so it's not just a matter of, oh yeah, I'm, I'm feeling my body. I'm connecting with my body. It's, but are you doing it in a way that you're creating the safety for things to come up and you let them come up and you can stay within your window of tolerance to ride those waves and not jump ship because it feels too intense and scary for you. So that's the purpose of the somatic work is yes, we have to attune. Absolutely. And no one can realize their full potential without that piece, but it's more than just attuning. It's also learning how to track your nervous system, notice which state you're in at any given time, know the tools to shift your state, not have to wait a week to go see your therapist, know how to shift your state in the moment, and then being able to complete responses as they come up or as they happen in everyday life, because things will continue to happen. So that's one piece. Another piece is the parts work Mm -hmm. or internal family systems. Mm -hmm. And especially around those people who are sick. And in fact, on my biology of trauma summit this year, I interviewed Dr. Dick Schwartz, and Mm -hmm. we talked just about the parts that come up for people with chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And these parts will keep them sick, Mm -hmm. can keep them sick. And same thing, parts can keep us in our trauma response. And so we do need to look at the narratives that we tell ourselves, the the stories, the belief systems that these parts have. We generally don't go into stories. We don't go into, into that kind of processing. I integrate parts work with somatic work so that we're identifying different parts as they're showing up in your body and being able to communicate with them, negotiate with them and be able to have an internal sense of peace rather than the internal sense of battle that we can have when we don't understand our parts. That third piece is what has been the missing piece because we've had somatic work. We've had parts work. That's not new, but the missing piece has been this biology piece where we have to look at how the trauma physiology has created lasting changes in our physiology and our biology that don't just reverse on their own. And when those are present, they will now keep our body in a trauma response. It doesn't even have to be emotional. Now your own biology is keeping your body in a trauma response, giving you the, 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 the signal all the time of, yeah, it's not safe yet. It's not safe yet. It's not safe yet. And so addressing the biology and needing to learn how to shift the biology into a biology of safety where we have energy because the trauma response is actually an energy problem, a mitochondrial problem, like not just a a woo-woo energy problem. Like we're talking about like a mitochondrial oxidative stress, inflammation, that kind of energy problem. And so we have to look at the biology because otherwise, if we don't, the biology will be what keeps us stuck in our patterns. And so that's what I teach to my professionals and practitioners. Most of them don't know this lens of the biology of trauma. So that's where I put the majority of my focus, mm-hmm. but what I do lead, cause I do still lead them through their own personal work in the process. And so I integrate the parts work and the somatic work with the biology work so that they can experience what is a truly holistic and integrative approach that then they can pass that on and create that same integrative experience for their patients or clients. 
I, I really love how you talk about this, Amy, because, and I, and I think in my work um, as a trauma therapist and now training people around trauma, I think it's important to acknowledge and, and critical to acknowledge the biological mechanism, right? Our body is incredible and adaptive and does wonderful things to keep us safe and will keep us there. And so I, I really love that you weave that in so beautifully. Um, I'm being cognizant of our time and I wanna shift to, um, of course, just for our listeners, I will link up to Amy's website and how you can get um, information around the certification course that she offers. Um, and it sounds like the summit is coming up, right? Yes, August one through seven. Yay, so get signed up for that. Um, and I'll also link to IFS work and somatic, somatic work so that people kind of have, would like to learn more who people like you or me, kind of like what I call nerdy neurobiology and whatnot, want to just learn more. I'll link up to that too. But let me ask you a couple of our rapid fire questions, if you don't mind. Um, as long as they don't traumatize me. No, I don't think so. Um, what's one thing that you think people get wrong about this work? I think people get wrong the difference between stress and trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think most people think that they are stressed when they're actually walking around in a trauma response, a chronic trauma response, not even realizing that that's where they are. And that, oh my gosh, yes. So many people are walking around in this hyper aroused state. Yeah. Um, If you could go back and and talk to young Amy, um, knowing what you know now, what would you say to her? I am the one that she is waiting for. <laughs> I love that. Oh, makes me teary. Um, I think often in healthcare, people get intimidated by professionals, right? Especially professionals with lots of letters and stuff behind their name. Um, what's something about you that just makes you a messy human being, just perfectly imperfect? <laughs> I have a dog. I have a black Belgian shepherd dog and <laughs> she and I go get muddy and wet and dirty on our walks, on our hikes. She loves to run next to me on my bike and actually try to race me. And I do have to admit she on short distances, she will win. She is that <laughs> fast, but that is, that is me and all of my just enjoyment of life and humanness that, uh, Oh yeah, gosh. when it comes to my dog, I'll, I'll do anything with her. I'm just imagining this big black dog racing you with your bike. I love it. Okay. Oh, you should see the look in her eye. Like this is so intentional. Yeah. <laughs> um, and final question. It's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? Wow. Now that's a hard question because I have dialed my sleep in so well, knowing the importance to my mental health. Uh, that I am in bed long before 11. Okay. And I I stop eating three hours before I go to bed in order to have good sleep. So, um, okay. So she'll teach you this. Amy will teach you this, (laughs) but hypothetically speaking. (laughs) Because I wear an aura ring. And so I, I want my numbers to be good in the morning. And I know that if I eat late, it's going to mess all my numbers up. Um, the old Amy would have reached for, um, coconut ice cream. Mm-hmm. This Amy would go for mint tea. Nice. Nice. 
And that would be, that would help you just kind of. That would be the idea. Awesome. Awesome. Amy, thank you so much for this. I just, I, I love and appreciate so much how you weave so beautifully language that feels both well-researched and also very accessible. And I think that that's hard to do and, and you do such a beautiful job. So thank you so much for, for being here. Uh, thank you, Amy. That means a lot. Thank you for the work that you do. Absolutely. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. 